welcome to episode F of the Temple of Blair podcast. This is yet another History of Roadrunner Records entry. You'll notice I've been pumping these out the last couple of days. It turns out I had a backlog of these interviews which needed editing and pumping out, so you're likely to see a few more coming over the next few days. This episode is Kyle Thomas of X Hoarder and Floodgate fame. He's also in Alabama Thunderpussy and Trouble, but we're only focusing on the two Roadrunner staples for this interview. Kyle was incredibly accommodating with his time, uh, in which we looked at the relationship between X Hoarder and Floodgate and Roadrunner Records, and I had a bit of a fanboy moment about Alabama Thunderpussy, who are pretty much my one of my favourite sort of stoner southern rock bands. With regards to Kyle and Roadrunner Records, he had three albums on the label, Slaughter in the Vatican and The Law with X Hoarder, and Penalty with Floodgate. You'll notice as well that X Hoarder are back together, and they recently released Mourn the Southern Skies on Nuclear Blast, I believe, last year. Nonetheless, you're going to really enjoy it. I did. Thanks again, Kyle. One, two, fuck shit up. stable and happy how are you man i'm well i'm well how about yourself yeah so i've just come off a long day at work so um yeah just uh just learning to roll with it at the minute <laughs> everything all right after coffee or or cocktail in that cup oh, I've, I've got black coffee here i've got water over there and i've got diet coke as a backup cheers here's my black coffee your black coffee cheers buddy <clears throat> Everything all right after Zeta? Yeah, it was really uh, pretty hairy to ride it out. Normally, my wife and I have a rule that if it gets to, when it starts looking like category two is going to become category three, we plan on getting out. Mm. The problem with this storm was it was very fast moving uh, and out of nowhere and completely unanticipated it exploded into a category three from a category one they they were at first thinking it was just going to be a mild one Mm. barely out of tropical storm stage but something about the warm water it liked so uh, now that was the bad news about it being fast the good news about it being fast was it rolled right through here in a matter of hours and Mm. Uh, it was throwing so much water around, and the winds were like 120 miles an hour. So uh, the the damage would have been extensive, and the uh, the flooding would have been bad if it was moving, say, four miles an hour. But it, it was it cruised through at about 21 miles an hour. So mm-hmm. it was really fast moving for a storm. Sometimes they, even this tropical storms, when they're smaller and they sit over you in in a slow moving pace, they just dump in water, dump in water, and it's for a city like New Orleans that's below sea level, that's yeah. a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad everything's all right. As you say, you only had a, some minor damage to your uh, roof, right? Yeah, it wasn't much. It's mm-hmm. it's something that's an easy fix that I'll probably either never do or, <laughs> or, or I'll wait till like two years from now when it's a real problem. Cool, cool. Okay, I'm going to jump straight into it because um, I know you're you teaching after this. No, no, no. I'm 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 open today, so... You got plenty of time here. Okay, cool. Uh, so the project is the history of Roadrunner Records, and um, effectively, I've been asking everyone that's been associated with the label um, for the last thirty odd years what their experiences were, because it's kind of an interesting. For me, it's quite interesting. A lot of labels are either giant monolithic beasts which have no, 
narrative or context like your big EMIs or your Sonys and things like that. And there's some tiny ones like your combats and your shatter records and shrapnel who just come straight and burn out very quickly. But Roadrunner did something else. It kind of maintained this individuality for a good 25 years before it all started to, I won't say fall apart, but they started to lose indie cred, I guess. Um, so I thought it was worth trying to establish a bit of a narrative there. Uh, and Exorder is, and Floodgate are part of that narrative. Uh, but I'll open with an apology because I could have seen Alabama Thunderpussy in Sheffield Corporation in the summer of 2008. But uh, ah. yeah, but I missed it because it was my mate's birthday party. Yeah, and it, it's probably not a bad thing that you missed that one because I was extremely under the weather and I almost didn't perform that show at all. Wow. And I think I might have, I had strep throat, very, very bad case of strep throat and, uh, you know, fever. I, I, could, I couldn't swallow anything. So, you know, getting medicine down or, you know, fluids was really difficult. And I really ended up sounding like a raped seal. It was terrible. <laughs> but uh, I, I powered through at least five or six songs just, to you know give the people something that it was you know we we came a long way to play the show and people came out probably on a weeknight uh i think it was a saturday which is why i was doubly doubly gutted i think it was yeah i remember it being this is like a a golden opportunity but i was like i must have been 18 and had no money and i was already at the barbecue or something like that but yeah uh, now i feel even worse that it was a saturday night (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean it is what it is that's one of the perils of being uh, especially a singer or a drummer on mm. tours, your your instrument is your body. Yeah. So if it's compromised in any way, it really makes for a, a difficult performance. Yeah. Yeah. So I have um, I've written it out as thirteen questions related to yourself and Rodero and Exorder and Floodgate and all that good stuff. But really, we can we can deal with it chronologically. We can go in in and out of things, and we can interrogate things as we go along. Sure. So, at yeah, man. Um, so I guess it starts with Three Cherries, right? There was a label called Three Cherries, which Borovoj Kurjan was involved with. Now, Borovoj is a guy who keeps cropping up in this story, but I can never pin him down to exactly what he does. Um, so it was interesting to see him there. Bori doesn't do anything. <laughs> Borovoj, uh, I think he really got his start as a journalist, and then he moved into the A&R field. Um, when we first started talking with him, he was representing Three Cherries. Uh, Three Cherries had started a fledgling subsidiary called Mean Machine Records. Mm-hmm. And I think Mean Machine had signed Machine Head right before us. We were in consideration for the very first signing to me and machine and so was machine head but sorry not machine head violence, violence. Was i was violence. gonna say yeah yeah because machine head came well after it was violence Grateful, yeah uh you know my my timeline gets foggy so uh, it's cool just crack me upside the head if so mm-hmm. but uh they uh they were talking with us and and at the time the exhorter wasn't even a complete unit we were uh we had been broken up the first breakup of the band occurred in early 1988 I think maybe like January February of 1988 and they started talking with 
Mean Machine before Chris and I had returned to the band. And um, along the way, we, we, we signed with them. We, we started recording an album. They, they had given us a you know, very small budget, even for back then. And so we were just doing our best. Uh, we had already done the, the Slaughter in the Vatican demo and the Get Rude demo uh, prior to that. And really what we wanted to do was release the Slaughter in the Vatican demo. We recorded that at uh, Ultrasonic Studios here. Uh, later down the line, uh, Down Nola was recorded there. So it was mm -hmm. a very good, reputable studio in town here. And for whatever reason, uh, the powers that be decided that we needed to to start the album over completely from scratch. So uh, we felt like it didn't really get the, the right feel. We had nightmares with guitar tones, drum tones, all this is, stuff. Is this three and, cherries that are calling that shot or is this? Yes, that was three cherries. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so midway through the recording session, uh, three cherries, I guess, goes bankrupt and decides oh, to okay. fold and uh and shut down the subsidiary mm. in the process so um what happened was road runner road racer at the time had a a smaller subsidiary called rc records that was more specialized to uh to you know thrash and death metal uh right okay specifically and 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 uh, really death metal was just starting to develop but thrash was still big at the time so then we uh, we came along to that. But before I get ahead of myself, Borovoy mm -hmm. was the one that was our A&R guy, basically, between me and Machine and the band. And when Road Racer RC took over the uh, the contract, then Monty Connor became our A&R guy. So that's the chronology there. So was... Me Machine acquired by Roadrunner, or was Borovoy just saying, "Hey Monty, you might want to pick these lads up." That's they just sold the contract off. There was no absorption of that, not to my knowledge. Uh, it oh, was okay. just here. We're going to sell you this contract. Okay, I found that quite when I, when I was when I was reading up on that. I heard about the demo. You wanted to have the demo out as the album, and then being told to re-record it. Um, and I found it interesting because I read it as Roadrunner asked you to do that. And historically, Case has gone to bands and asked to put out a demo as an album, as like, I guess, a cost-cutting exercise. So I was thinking, that, well, that's a bit of a change of pace. But obviously, if it's Three Cherries that made that decision, then it's it doesn't quite fit my theory. Did you have any relationship with Monty prior to? No, no. We, we met Monty after uh, we signed, well, while we were in the process of signing with uh, Road Racer at the time. Yeah. What was your impression of him? I I always loved Monty uh, as a person. I think he, uh, he he's genuine without a doubt. He's uh, he has over the years, he has become a friend. He's, he's been more of a friend to me than he ever needed to be. And, uh, and also always very fair in a business uh, situation. Now that's not to say that we've always agreed on what needs to be done to get the job done. But, uh, but he's very knowledgeable. His track record speaks for itself. And like I said, in, an even better person. 
Yeah, I mean, the more I hear about him, um, the more I kind of get the impression that he's not so much an A&R guy. He's more just a professional metalhead. He's paid to just be a good metalhead. And then everything yeah, I mean, he, benefits. He knows what he knows what he likes. And uh, most of the time he's right. Sometimes he's not. But nobody's ever, you know, 100% accurate at anything that they do. So okay. uh, just the – but the f- simple fact that he is such a gigantic music fan – He's got a really, really great instinct for being able to spot what's good and and what's going to, you know, potentially blow up into something bigger. Yeah. Uh, did you ever get the chance to meet Case? I did meet Case a couple of times. Yes. Oh, cool. How do you take? Uh, how do you find him? Um, really, we only sat down maybe twice uh, and had discussions. There was a funny. Uh, a funny thing, uh, we we had always kind of joked amongst ourselves back in the beginning that uh, there was a rumor that had gone around that that Case Wessels was just a kind of a uh, a pen name for uh, for actually for for uh, King Diamond. We we thought that some kind of way. King Diamond owned Roadrunner back then. <laughs> and, uh, and and I don't think we started that idea ourselves. Somebody put that idea in our head and, and it just kind of grew. And I, ne- I never met him while we were in Exhorter, but when Monty was uh, courting penalty, which became floodgate, I went to New York on a, on a trip to uh, you know, spend time with him there and, and just see the label. And he, he really wanted me to sign with Roadrunner. And I had had a bad experience with Roadrunner, mm-hmm. with Exhorter, so I was not really too thrilled about it. But uh, I went there and, and sat down at a meeting with Monty and Case. And when we finally were officially introduced, I shook his hand and said, well, now I can officially say that I know for sure that you're not King Diamond. <laughs> and he kind of like looked at me and Monty laughed because he knew the story. So he asked me to tell Case the story and he had a chuckle about it. And that was it. But the only other time I really interacted with him was at a show in Rotterdam when Floodgate was touring with Sepultura. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to be fair, mate, I've never seen Case and King Diamond in the same room. So <laughs> the jury's still out, right? Yeah, man. And we'll, we'll get to, you know, how we got there with Floodgate and um, presumably the obstacles they had to overcome to get you back after the experience. But uh, I'm interested in, I, I'm, I'm interested in really boring things. Um, so I'm going to try and pitch to you the model Roadrunner contract. So actually, I best clear that up first. So when you say Three Cherries kind of sold the contract onto Roadrunner, did Roadrunner come in with another advance, another arrangement, or was it just black and white word for word, the three cherries contract, but with Roadrunner on the top or Road Racer or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I know we signed a second contract. Right. So at the time I was, I was not the one in the band that was dealing with the business side of it. Uh, I think at this time I was 19 and uh, I was really more or less interested in the next beer I was getting handed, uh, you know, getting loaded uh talking to a girl that was really my priority uh and working on music of course um Mm. that always kind of seems to fall in there with a 
<laughs> with a musician's agenda at some yeah. point. But uh, I do remember we signed another contract, which tells me that, you know, the, the original contract had been augmented in several ways. It had to be. So, you know, more than likely the term was probably tweaked. Uh, I know that we went over budget with what, uh, with what the three uh, cherries contract uh, stipulated. Mm. So Roadrunner did, you know, continue to fund the project until it was done. It, it went over budget from what it was originally supposed to be, Yeah, but I'd be shocked if we spent, ten thousand dollars on it i don't think we did I'll, I'll run the model contract by you and if you th if you think it's somewhat familiar great and if not it might just be kind sure. of fun to it so the model contract tends to be for six to seven albums maybe eight sounds about right <laughs> yeah uh, yeah um an option after the second or the third depending on who it is um sure. roughly usually the advance is about five grand yeah yeah um all intellectual property and publishing is retained by Roadrunner in perpetuity, forever and ever. Of course. Of course. Um, no guaranteed touring support. So they typically put you on the road, but they wouldn't guarantee the support on the basis that you might get given a shit gig and they don't want to support that. You're going to give me PTSD today. Sorry, man. If there's anything you don't <laughs> want to talk about, you can just shut me up. No, no, no. It's fine. I lived it. And look, it's, it's a great story. It is. Uh, you know, win, lose, or draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all. That's all pretty spot on. Mm. I guess at the time I was speaking to Andy Saunders yesterday. He was the one of the A and R guys at um, the UK office in the early nineties, maybe even through your time as well. Um, and he said uh, it is usually that that contract's really good for kids of say nineteen twenty, who sure. And when when someone comes to them and says, "Oh yeah, Sepultura, King Diamond, yeah, we'll get you on the road with them," it's a really easy thing to sign that dotted line, but it takes you know a solicitor, a lawyer, or someone to go, "Fucking what? No, <laughs> do not sign yeah. up for this." But um, still, um, now we we did have a we did have an attorney uh, negotiate that contract, and uh, in turn, he actually negotiated this. He, he's he's currently still the exhorter uh, council and, mm -hmm. and he negotiated the, the deal with nuclear blast as well. Um, I'm sure he's come as long of a way in 30 something years as we have. Uh, we're happy with the way he represents us. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that he, he worked that contract pretty hard if I remember properly <laughs> uh, accurately rather. I mean, it got, it kept you busy for two years. We were busy. We uh, now we we weren't as busy as we probably should have been, but there were a lot of uh, factors into that 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 prevented us from being a band that just beat down the road relentlessly. Mm. Um, first and foremost, Chris, our drummer, Chris Nail, was enrolled in Louisiana State University on a scholarship. So yeah. yeah he did the smart right thing for himself and stayed in school in school. Uh, so really we, we would go out and do regional shows as much as we could uh, to where he, you know, as long as he could get away, we'd go do it. 
but we like slaughter in the Vatican. We did not even do a, a proper United States tour. We went uh, to to Europe for a month in uh, March, like late February and most of March in uh, 1991. Mm. So really, that the album came out in October of 90 and we really didn't do a proper tour until then. And even then it was a very, very small booking agency in Europe. Uh, the guy who owned it was also the tour manager, the, you know, the roadie, the, he, he, he was one of the drivers cause we had two vehicles mm. and I mean, he worked really, really hard, but I, mostly I think he was just an, an Uber fan who, who had the means and the funds to, to, to do tours for bands and uh, literally we were playing like really small clubs and youth centers. We would pull into the countryside, a long driveway in the countryside and get out at the venue and step out of the van. And there would be like a herd of sheep standing right there. And you can't, you got to like encourage them to move so you can get out. And we're, (laughs) we'd never seen any of this stuff. We're, you know, suburban slash city guys from New Orleans were not out in the country going, what is this? And, yeah. uh, you know, the shows would sometimes they'd fill up pretty nicely, sometimes not so much. I mean, we were still a pretty new band, mm. but we didn't care. We were on tour in Europe and we had all the beer we could drink and, uh, you know, fried garbage foods. It was it was a great Fun. time in my life. Yeah. <laughs> Did um, Roadrunner ever get involved in the production of Slaughter in the Vatican in that? they're trying to give notes. Uh, you mentioned guitar tone earlier. Were they, did they influence that or was it kind of like um, the, just the perils of production? Monty actually came down. I think he was unhappy with the way the, the sessions were sounding. So he came down to Tampa. We were, man, we were really on a, on a low, low budget. We, we're staying in like seedy, seedy motels. Um, I remember that some of them were really, really bad. <laughs> uh, it was just, just working during the day and, and uh, drinking in the night uh, in these crappy hotels. And, uh, you know, basically with the budget we had and the, the inexperience that we had, uh, Scott Burns did his best to, to try and convey a, a, a good production onto the uh, basically some a session that he didn't start you know and that's kind of yeah, a nightmare sure. for i've talked with max norman about that with like for instance the difference in the sound between blizzard of oz and Diary of a madman uh max took over that session from chris sangarides so he didn't start that session. That's why it sounds drastically different from Dive of a Madman. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened, I guess, with Slaughter in the Vatican in a way is we started out with an engineer here in New Orleans with, uh, with the sessions that we were doing for Slaughter in the Vatican. And we didn't really have a producer working with us. It was just us. Mm. So uh, they just basically took everything that we had. And really we just didn't have good tones to start with. So we ended up re-recording all the guitar tones and then we realized that the drum tones were bad. So we re uh, uh, kind of like retweaked the drum mix with, right. uh, with trickery in the studio and determined that that wasn't good either. So 
then Chris comes along and re-records the drum tracks completely, overdubs them with nobody playing guitar, like literally to the guitar parts. That there's no click track on these sessions. So the fact that Chris did this was incredible. I remember Tom Morris, the owner of uh, Morris Sound Studios, standing in the uh, in the in the console room watching Chris overdub this album to this crazy music and just going, how is this dude doing this? <laughs> but it's what we had to do. And, you know, even then the, uh, the, the, there were complications with the drum tone. So there's, there's drum samples on, on that album. Uh, mm. There were samples taken from beneath the remains of Sepultura that that snare sound on Slaughter in the Vatican for the most part on that album is the same one that Igor had on Sepultura's what? Beneath the Remains. It's kind of weird. Wow. That's so yeah, we, we just did the best we could. Monty came down. I, I'm kind of taking the, the long route to get to the it's answer, cool, huh? but Monty got Monty came down and uh and got involved in uh in the the mixing sessions and you know mostly as an observer. Uh on occasion Monty likes to get hands on. Yeah. So yeah. uh that's that's okay. Uh you know uh at, at the end of the day you either keep what what happens or you or you change it and scott burns is really really a great great engineer as well as producer he he knew a hell of a lot more than we did so mm. we followed his lead we we end the end result wasn't what we had hoped but i i, I have learned to be a little more forgiving to it today for what it is and mostly because of how other people look at it the fans fans love that album it's been <laughs> inducted into the decibel hall of fame it, it it is to this day the most popular uh item that we have you know that uh, it just gets the most love and and that's okay i'm uh yeah i mean not, uh, it not is to what blow, it is not to blow smoke up your ass but i didn't know there was a problem with it until I started reading the background. You know what I mean? I, mean, I listened to the demo. It just, comparison. I think it misrepresents what we were, especially as a live band. Yeah. The, the whole thing about Exhorter is from start to finish, it's always been people walk away from our shows going, that wasn't just a concert. That was an experience. And that's yeah. something that we always took pride in. I think a lot of that came from us being really almost more of a punk band in attitude and presence than we were a metal band. Mm. Uh, we were embraced by the punk community before we were embraced by the metal community in new Orleans. So that really helped us with gaining that mindset. We learned a lot playing with punk bands and playing at punk shows. And we still hold a lot of that uh, principle to our, our standard this day. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's just always been our shows were always it, all the all the bands that uh, that came up behind us. We were the band to play with. You you wanted an opening slot with Exhorter. We 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 took Crowbar under our wing. We took I Hate God under our wing. We took Soil and Green under our wing. And there was so many bands from New Orleans that you know. I, I'm not taking credit for what they've done because Lord knows every single one of those bands worked harder and longer than we ever did after mm -hmm. the fact. But, you know, it was an, it was a great launch pad for anybody looking to jumpstart 
uh, their career. It sounds sounds like it was a strong community as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There was our fan base was kind of like in that old Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer holiday special. It's kind of like the Island of Misfit Toys. Uh, We, with open arms, we welcomed anyone and everyone, no matter who you were, no matter what you were about from start to finish. You could come to our show have a good time and not worry about getting hassled. And if people hassled you for no good reason, we got them out of there. It was, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but if you started trouble, we also got you out. <laughs> you get more of an idea of Exoda as a unit from the demo than the album. Uh, I think that's what you're referring to when you're saying, well, that's where the, the mix didn't quite deliver on, even though it does sound shit out and it's an awesome album. That's the, that's what you wanted it to speak to the unit, the, the actual Exorder experience, as opposed to here's perfectly sonically crafted layer after layer after layer. That doesn't matter if you've got a tour de force band behind it. Yeah, really. Uh, in all honesty, you know, the demo was raw. The de- I think the demo captured our live feel better than anything that we did before or after. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but uh, but it, to this day, like the old purists from New Orleans, they'll tell you that's the best, that, that's their favorite era of the band, that original lineup on that album, on that demo rather. And uh, I, I don't know, it, 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 the, the, the Slaughter in the Vatican album is more templated like the early death metal, especially the Tampa death metal, like Obituary and... Uh, uh, death and decided it's very kind of kind of in that mold production wise yeah and it just wasn't really us but it served its purpose and it got our music heard and the only other thing I could think to do at this point would be to either do a re-release of the demo properly or re-record the whole album again from start to finish, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> I really don't. I'd rather write new days, music. I reckon these days you could get the demo, just put it online and say, okay, guys, this is now an open source project. With uh, Take the digital tracks and remaster it yourself. I'll see you in six months and see what people come up with. Um, that, I guess that would be an option, but I'm not going to tell you how to, uh, how to approach it. Sure, sure. Do you know why Scott Burns? What you mentioned, obviously, the death metal sound of the template. That's because the, the the Roadrunner death metal factory was about to really come into full flow at that time. So it's no surprise that um, that's the template that was fit. But do you know why Roadrunner opted for Scott Burns at the time? Um, it may have been that he was just the hot hand at the time, and. Mm. Uh, and they they were having a lot of success with him, yeah. So, uh, and plus, Tampa is, you know, not terribly far from here. It's it's about an eight to nine hour drive now. Back then, when the highways were fifty five miles per hour instead of seventy, it was more like a twelve to thirteen hour haul. Especially when we were pulling the trailer full of gear, <laughs> uh, it, it was a pretty long ride. But uh, but we it was attainable. We could pile in. I mean. Anybody who's anybody in New Orleans, Louisiana, 
most likely hopped in a car with their parents and went down to Disney World in Orlando, which is not far from Tampa. So for us, it was just, yeah, we'll just, we'll just ride down there. Yeah. Crazy. I, I went to jail when we were recording that album in Tampa. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> Something really stupid that, that I didn't think at the time was a big deal. Uh, we were, we had just gotten out of bed and ready to head to the studio and there was a Burger King in between our uh, our Roach Motel and the studio. So we got in the drive-thru, uh, got back out to get on the street, and we're at the red light. And I looked down, and I saw uh, a, a street sign for the intersection, you know, uh, uh, 52nd Street and Fowler Street or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Fowler. And... I saw it and it was on the ground and I went, that would look great in the practice room. So I opened the door, jumped out, grabbed the sign, got back in the van. Well, as soon as I did, whoever was driving looked in the rearview mirror and went, there's two cop cars behind us. And I went, well, that's just garbage. Anyway, it's just laying there broken on the street. And they're like, guys are like, I don't know, man. Uh, Let's see what happens. So we turned out onto the first street. Basically, we needed to make a right and a left, and then we were at the studio, literally right there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so as soon as we got to the second light and made the turn to go into Morris Sound, the lights came on, the police lights. So I was like, oh, shit, you know. So we get out, and... Uh, <laughs> And the police come up and they're like, y'all know why we pulled us over? And everybody at the time before that was like, everybody just played them and we'll just let it unravel. 19 years and old. So, and so everybody's like, no, no, why? And he's like, well, we saw one of y'all jump out and steal that street sign back over there. And I remember him looking at everybody. Did anybody uh, in this van do that? And... I'm not going to say any names, but one guy right away looked dead in this guy's face, the cop's face, and just went, no. And uh, everybody else just kind of stood there quiet. And uh, the cop said, all right, I mean, if if whoever did this isn't going to step up, then I'm going to have to take you all to jail. And right there, I just went, it was me. I said, <laughs> but I didn't know that it was like city property or anything. I just... It was broken, and I just thought it would look good in our in our practice room. So he said, "All right, well, let's just come back over here by the car, you know." And we're talking, we're talking, and then the guy said they're watching me talking, and then all of a sudden they see him, ask me to put my hands behind my back, and it's like, mm -hmm. ah, shit. So, yeah, I went to jail. I was, I was, I was there probably. I, I didn't make it past the holding tank. Uh, I was there right. for maybe eight hours. The one and only time in my life I went to jail. I don't know how that happened, but literally the only time I ever went to jail and uh, they bailed me out later on in the afternoon. And so that's where part of the, the budget for the yeah. <laughs> recording of the album went. Monty's on the phone going, this is going to be great press. Let me just get on the phone with Karai. Right. Yeah. Well, there wasn't much else. There wasn't much else. Honestly, we didn't have, we were ugly as pig shit. We didn't have, our image was no image. And that was the punk rock side of us. We just, <laughs> we're us. And Monty told us, he was like, man, we really, we had nothing to market off of you guys other than the fact that y'all were violent people. 
that's really how we 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 marketed y'all it was just they're uncontrollable and most of the time he was right we were uncontrollable <laughs> you mentioned um monty was hands-on in the studio when he came down um obviously wants to check out the mixes sometimes he's got himself an exec producer credit on some albums obviously not this one but it's good to know he, he, he likes to get stuck in um do you know where well where did the the album cover come from Oh, well, the original album cover was supposed to be the uh, the demo, of right. course, uh, which was, I don't know if you've ever seen that cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cardinal. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it's, it's not just a Pope. It's actually Pope John Paul II, who is now better known as Saint, Saint Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Saint John Paul II. So Extra Perhaps the most beloved Pope uh, if not ever, definitely of the modern era. Mm. And we hanged him from from our logo with the Vatican burning in the background and women and children crying and praying at his feet. It's, it's really disturbingly horrendous. And, uh, um, and so Roadrunner said, no go, we can't have that. There's no way, you, you'll never get it in the stores. Sure. Like, why not? You know, it's not real. It's just parody. You know, we see it all the time. They're like, you, you can't do that to the Pope. <laughs> so we're like, okay, well, so then they, they hired another artist and came up uh, somewhere. And somehow along the way, another rendition was, was brought in with the Secret Service type agents leading the Pope to the gallows with an angry yeah. mob. And, uh you know, in, in retrospect, because the album's so loved, it's, uh, you know, it's got a place in my heart. At the time, I wasn't happy with it because, mm. uh, you know, our vision had been altered by third party and I wasn't happy about that. So I didn't embrace that artwork yeah. right out of the gates, but uh, it's a classic. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so once the album's recorded and released, you kind of, you're in there with Roadrunner, you know, you you know Monty, you know some of the personnel. Who else was at the New York office at the time, or who else were you dealing with at Roadrunner? Or was it just primarily Monty in his capacity um, as a and guy? You know, we had uh, press people and uh, like people that handled radio and so like Mark Abramson handled uh, radio, better known as Psycho. Everyone knows Mark Psycho Abramson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe he oversaw radio. Um, Sophie Diamantis did uh, PR. Um, Scott Givens oversaw, I think, touring and tour support. So we, right. we had a, a team there that we knew hands-on and we talked to fairly regularly. And like, like I said, I didn't really uh, – I, I would do a lot of interviews. I, always as a singer, you got to do a lot of the press and PR. So other than that, I didn't really do much – negotiation talks or you know business talks until the floodgate days because i i ran that band so that was yeah yeah that was my baby the reason i ask because um i tend to have like that's my blind spot because it's easy to find the bands that are on roadrunner and find the personnel involved but it's the people behind the scenes which you'll just never ever hear about so i have to always ask directly who you're speaking to and there's some names which i recognize and some i don't so that's really cool thank you um on your thanks section for slaughtering the Vatican, uh, you say "fuck you" to Jerry 
Ramos for throwing us out of the King Diamond gig. Is there a story there? There is a story there. I wasn't there that night. I was still in <laughs> high school. Uh, I wanted to go, right. but um, I, I was still in high school, and uh, it was a weeknight, so it was hard for me to sneak out and try to sneak in because it wasn't a nightclub. But mm-hmm. it was a lot easier to get into nightclubs back then. Uh, I know my brother went with the other exhorter guys and piled in a van and went to the show. He was my brother's a little bit older than me. And uh, at the time, uh, there was a lot of uh, rivalry between certain members of exhorter and some of the more, I guess, glam metal bands around Mm -hmm. town. So uh, there, there was a, a legendary shirt that was worn that had uh, kill the posers on the front. Right. And on the back, it had lists that said the following bands are posers. And then they had national acts listed and then local acts listed. All right. So right out the bat, there's, that's war, you know, that people <laughs> want to fight. So, uh, and part of why we were there anyway, was putting out flyers for, uh, for our first show that was like scheduled for a month later we were just we hadn't even played a show yet this was as we were developing and uh and so i think jerry ramos i don't know jerry but if i remember correctly he might have been the promoter for that gig right okay and uh and so he got angry with uh some of the nonsense that went on there and and threw a couple of guys out of the gig for basically just harassing people and Exciting being violence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how yeah, that's things- the best of my knowledge since I was not there. Sure. Sure. Um, so how were things going into the law then? Cause he had Rob Beaton for that one. Uh, is it Rob Beaton? Yes. Rob Beaton. It is. Yes. Was that another roadrunner assignment or was that a selection uh, from your site? Well, he was definitely their recommendation. Um, like at the time we really didn't have like a black book full of people. So we relied on them greatly for providing us with any insight on who would be a good producer or, you know, what's a good studio to go to outside of new Orleans. We just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rob had done heathen and defiance yep. and amongst other things, he's worked with Greg Kin, So he's, he's done you know, a lot of real stuff and a uh, really good engineer. Great guy. And Masters we hit bad. it off with him right off the bat. He, we really, we really, really did. But, you know, again, that was another deal where we came into the uh, the studio on a $10,000 budget this time. Woo, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> now we're in the big leagues, right? And uh, And so we show up the first day and the guys start experimenting with guitar tones. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I was like, shouldn't you have had your guitar tone ready to go before we got here? Yeah. And so right off the bat, they came in with, uh, there was a BBE Sonic Maximizer and a Furman EQ that they were wanting to try because they were the hot new thing. A lot of the bands who were successful at the time were were using these new outboard uh, pieces of gear. Right. And... So literally they rented them for the sessions, but, and you know, it's just another thing where just 
uh, or ignorance and inexperience got in the way. It was it was a bad idea to do that on studio time. That's something that should have been done months leading up prior. So yeah. Uh, so we we started out with terrible guitar tones, and uh, the only things that that the only tones that came out right from square one on that album with the drums. The drums sound really mm. good on that album. Yeah. And uh, so all the music was done here uh, and we got to the end of the the session and had, I don't know, like literally like nine hours left of studio worth of money for studio time. Right. And so everybody looks at me and goes, okay, it's your turn. And we'd been in the studio for two weeks at this point. <laughs> and I looked at them. I'm like, y'all kidding me, right? I got nine hours to do the whole album. Like, we believe in you, man. So <laughs> off I go. I did every song here in New Orleans except for uh, Cadence of the Dirge. I, I recorded that one in San Francisco when we were mixing the album. We, we had right. a few things to, to button up before we started mixing. And, yeah. uh, and so that was the case with, uh, with that song. But yeah, I, I recorded everything, mostly single tracked, uh, and uh, just kind of buckled down and closed my eyes and went for it, you know? Mm-hmm. I heard one of the techniques these days, is just because you are mentioning laying the drums on Slaughter after the guitars, I think um, Josh Wilbur, he did like the most recent Lamb of God album and Trivium and a couple of others. Mm-hmm. His technique is to come in and do the guitars first, and then work backwards. And I think the idea is wanting to avoid situations like the one you ended up in. So there's some sort of, there's something there as early as possible, even if it's like a scratch track or something like that to work from. And then you're not completely fucked if you end up running out of time or, or cash. Um, but I thought that's quite interesting. And it also saves you going to the studio and then waiting a week for the drummer to finish his bit. And then, it's, you know, you go up, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. There's there's so many different ways to record albums and sure. uh to record them without a click. Uh you know the the the, <laughs> the positive with doing that is that it gives it a really the most organic live feel you're going to get cuz the band's feeling everything. But yeah. if you have problems and you didn't record with a click track or you know, to a metronome for those that don't know what a click track is, mm. and it's just basically keeping perfect meter through the whole song. Mm. Then to go back and have to do repairs is really, really tricky because there's no eye contact when it's just sound. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, so it really like there's not one Exhorter album that was recorded in a live format. It always mm. started out with guitars playing a scratch track along to the drummer to get the drum tracks done and then building around that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, this last album was done with a click. So uh, it, it sounds proper to me in that regard. The Slaughter and Vatican sessions are way too fast. You listen to the demos <laughs> and you listen to the album and it was just, we were off to the races and mm. um, that's something that I've always since that album was released, like maintained, like when we were in rehearsals, I'm like, hey, y'all, we need to slow this down because it loses the groove if you're going mm. too fast. Mm. Uh, in my opinion, it just some of those slow grooves that we're known for 
when they're just a little too fast, it doesn't groove anymore. So that's really important. And being in the pocket, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, There's, there's a lot of factors that go in and the more people in a band we're a five piece band, most of the history of this, this, uh, this band and the more people, the more intangibles there are. And it's, it's, it's tricky to, to keep things perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Was, uh, was Roadrunner uh, happy with the mix on the law? No, we, uh, we had uh, the first (laughs) mix we turned in. uh, They, they were definitely thumbs down. It was bad. And, uh, half of the guitar tones were so awful. Like, you know, cause I say half, I mean one guy's tone and the other guy's tone. Yeah, yeah. And one of the guy's tones was so lousy that, um, we had to scratch them completely. But fortunately what we did was when each guy was recording, we recorded each guy's tracks through the other guy's tones. Mm. So they'd go through each of their rigs yeah. and that was for purposes of layering and just making it sound bigger and better. Uh, so we still had that guy's performance on the other guy's tones, but now we only just had one guitar tone on the album split left and right. Yeah. yeah. So, and when you start with this band, that's kind of the magic of the guitar tone of exhorter is, is the blend of the guitar sounds makes it sound that much bigger. That was always our, that was always our big thing. Each guitar tone on its own sounds like it's maybe missing a little something, but when they're together, it's just, wow, just so big. Yeah. And uh, so there was, uh, there was some resentment within the band that, that that tone had been struck. And, uh, but in retrospect, it was the right decision to make because it, I, I, I went back and listened to it not too long ago uh, on cassette and it was really, really bad. It just, it, the frequencies, uh, the, something about it just mm. kind of killed everything else in the mix. Yeah, and uh, and so the, the the mix for the law again, we just feel like it didn't completely represent what the band was about live. Yeah, and we had to learn to live with it. Rob did his very best that he could to uh, make lemonade out of lemons, you know. But we. The reason I focus on production quite a bit is because I, I try and identify trends within Roadrunner in the decision-making processes. Um, when I was speaking to Mike from Defiance last week, he was um, talking about how Jeff Waters produced the first album. Um, and I spotted that Jeff Waters was also meant to produce Beneath the Remains by Sepultura. Um, but oh, that wow. didn't happen. Yeah, 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 because I, I don't know why he pulled out, but we know that the Defiance sessions didn't go too well. Um, so my theory is effectively we're Roadrunner trying to make a thrash factory um, with Jeff Waters and they ended up making a death metal factory with Scott Burns and maybe they were having another yes. shot with Rob. You know what I mean? I'm trying to, I'm trying to pin those together. Um, that's why. I well, started. death metal and thrash metal are definitely brothers. Yeah. But they're uh, apples and oranges in a lot of ways. Mm. So, you know the 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 thrash beats are there in in death metal um you know a lot of musically a lot of it's the same but the 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 real dead ringer uh identifiability about each that that puts 
one on the left and one on the right is is definitely the vocals. Yeah, completely. So uh, I, when we were uh, towards the end of that first in that that incarnation of the band, where you know the Roadrunner years, uh, we were out on tour for the Law in Europe, doing a headliner tour with Channel Zero supporting. And we played a lot of festivals that were mostly death metal festivals hmm. and channel zero nor neither channel zero nor us were death metal. And so, and a lot of, we were still kind of a new band in a way because we yeah. hadn't really played a lot. So uh, we'd play these festivals and, and people would just kind of stand there. And I think when people are just getting exposed to something, they just kind of stand there. Yeah. Well, some of the guys in the band took that as, they weren't getting down the way that they do back home mm. and they were insult insulted and offended by it. And, uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, uh, there was that one, there was one show where we almost got into an altercation with the audience <laughs> over it. <laughs> and it got bad. And, and we, uh, we cut our set short and got on the bus and left immediately. And, uh, we, we just like mosh your bastards. It was just, you know, I, it never bothered me that much, but some of the other guys it did. I don't know why. It just, to me, it was just get out there, do the best I can, and, hmm. you know, let it stick. And it'll stick. And it did. I mean, that's what it was mostly. I think more than anything, it was just people either didn't know much about us or they were just kind of like, you know, watching, you know. Yeah. Not, usually when people go nuts and they're moshing, it's, it's either because they're familiar with it or they're just there to mosh. It's one of the two. There's, there are people that don't care what the music is. They just want to get in the pit. Yeah. Uh, and then, like, but I know for me, when I was younger, if there was a band I'd never seen before, I did a lot less moshing because I wanted to see the show. Mm. I wanted to see what was going on. So I think that was more the case in the early days. And it has to be because this band grows exponentially it's the only I've said it before. It's the only job I've ever had where I can leave for seven years, come back and get a pay raise. <laughs> it's, it's just the way it is. This band gets bigger even when the band's not together. And yeah. it's got to have some, a lot of it has to do with those early shows and those early tours. And, you know, the albums that we for so long looked at as uh, as weaknesses and, you know, something to not be satisfied with to other people, they're, they're iconic cult classic albums. So that's the word cult. The thing, the thing with recording as a recording artist is this, you write the songs, they're your songs. Mm. You collaborate with the team that you're writing with and you commit to putting them on to tape, digital, whatever it's going to be and release it. Once you release it, it no longer belongs to just you. It now belongs to everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, as a result, the way you feel about Slaughter in the Vatican, you have just as much of a right to as I do, <laughs> because we put it out there for you to purchase and listen to and connect with. So I, I can't sit there and go, well, I don't care what you think about it because because it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because you're the consumer. You, <laughs> you're the you're the music fan. It, it's it means it's more what it means to you is more important than what it means to me now. Yeah, I mean the records have life outside of, you know, it, it's um, it, where it's been created, I guess. 
Sure. And that reflects back on, on its creator in a way. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. It's so kind of like the Frankenstein monster, you know, the, yeah. he, this Frankenstein had this vision and he builds a monster. And as soon as the monster comes to life, he's like, I hate you. <laughs> but it doesn't first. matter. The monster now belongs to the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> how did the, your relationship with Roadrunner end with Exorder? Badly. Um, Thrash was at the time on its way out. The sales were bad. Uh, what happened with Exhorter was we came out not at the beginning of Thrash, but because Thrash really truly started probably like 82, 83-ish. And we formed uh, the first the first writings of this band started in late 85 and I, I was the last piece of the puzzle to join mm -hmm. in early 1986. So we weren't a complete unit until 86, but you look back on 86 and you know, this was right around the time that Slayer was doing rain and blood. Um, you know, dark angel had done darkness descends. Mm -hmm. You know, th there was, uh, Exodus was on Bonded by Blood. This was mm -hmm. the beginning of Thrash. So we yeah. were we we were exploding in New Orleans on our scene and writing and recording these demos. The only thing that stopped us from being in that first wave of Thrash, I think, or at least the second one, was uh, was that we just weren't signed and we were just you know just doing demos because we were playing whenever we play a show here in New Orleans. At anywhere from five to seven hundred people showing up, so we mm. were, we were, we were legit. We were doing it for real. Yeah, and uh, we just didn't have, you know, at the time there's no internet, so you know it's all tape trading and word of mouth. That's 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 a big reason why uh, we ended up getting signed. Mm. Uh, but it's not like today on, you know, the internet you can just be in Sweden in thirteen seconds, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so so. I really think if we had had an album that had come out in the, uh, the mid late eighties, that it would have been a much different ball game for this band because right. we, we started recording the album of slaughter in the Vatican in 1989 mm -hmm. and it wasn't released until almost the end of 1990. So at right. this time, Death metal's on the rise. Yeah, Thrash yeah, yeah. metal becoming an afterthought. So yeah. timing was bad for us. We were there all along. It, it just mm. didn't work for us. So did, did Roadrunner just not pick up on the third option then? Was that the the catalyst? Um, well, we were starting to record it, but <laughs> guys were dropping off like flies. And, mm. uh, and um, Frankie wasn't in the picture. Vinny wasn't in the picture. It was just me, Jay, Saravalo, and we had just started working with Jason Vibrooks, who was now our bass player. Mm -hmm. This is 1993. Yeah. And so Chris, Jay, Jason, and I were working. We had about three songs we were working on. We were fixing a demo, and it just just started falling apart. It just really wasn't going anywhere. And I was, I was increasingly unhappy with 
the like the band in general i was unhappy with it i was unhappy yeah. with the uh the style i was really wanting to get back into songwriting on my own mm-hmm. and that's when uh some things happened along the way before floodgate came around but mm-hmm. uh but i actually went and auditioned for corrosion of conformity no way in in 1993 while they were working on deliverance and huh. uh, i was there for maybe a week two weeks uh rehearsing on old stuff and demoing new stuff and uh, and you know it, as it turned out um i told them when i left i was like man you know I, i'm a huge fan of coc i had been asked to audition for coc before that uh, mm. back in like 88 but it was around the time exhorter was getting back together so i was like Busy. as much as i love you guys you're one of my favorite bands i want to mm. put my own thing back together yeah, yeah and yeah. uh and this time around i was like ready to ready to go with them and and um some of the band was really really into the idea of me and me being there and others not so much so um i told them the night before i left i was like i'd be lying if i said i don't want the job but at the end of the day, y'all don't need a singer unless you just want a front man, you know, because mm-hmm. you look at the old albums, uh, you know, the animosity. That's all uh, Mike Dean and Reed Mullins singing. Yeah, yeah. You know, there were, there were three piece. And uh, and that to me is that's the album that that made me love punk rock. Mm. You know, it, it was the crossover album that made me soften up on punk rock when I was um, an angry metalhead. And uh, and so I just said, y'all, I'm going home tomorrow. Y'all just let me know. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from Reed, and he said, Yeah, man, we're gonna we're gonna stick with what we got. But you know, thank you, <laughs> thank you for coming. <laughs> I so, never knew that man. They're one of my favorite yeah. bands, and that's probably my favorite album. And what could have been? That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there's been a couple of instances between here and there where I've gotten up on stage and jammed with them and sang a song, sang Black Sabbath or sang cool. like Hungry Child. The last time they came through here when they were still doing the three-piece thing about five years ago, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got up and did Hungry Child with them. And to me, that was just like, mm. like the highlight of my life. You know? Yeah, man. The, probably one of the best gigs I've ever been to is 2016 when COC did the first Deliverance re, uh, reunion show in Manchester. Oh, was, yeah. that, was the, that was the first one so no one knew what to expect but it just fucking brought the house down man it was awesome really of good course. time I've, I've nicked I've already nicked an hour off you and we've not even got to floodgate yet I've got nothing better to do rock on um, so in terms of the disillusion of Exorder they clearly dropped you because obviously the band was falling apart and everything was you know everything was on shaky ground so what do you do for those three years between that and Floodgate? Well, it really, it wasn't three years. Uh, Cause what happened was as soon as I got home and I mean the night I got home from the audition with COC uh, at the time I had moved back in with my parents. Uh, I had been living in an apartment on my own mm-hmm. and I had moved back in cause there had been talks of, of Jay Sarablo and I moving out to the San Francisco Bay area where Jason Bybrooks was living at the time. Okay. So we could go start building 
uh, exhorter up over there. And mm -hmm. some kind of way it was decided that that was a good idea. And I really didn't like the idea. I didn't, I was going to have to go out there and get a job and I, all I'd have been doing would have been flipping burgers and never have time to work on music. Sure. And uh, I didn't want to do it. And, and I was increasingly unhappy with the direction the band was going in at the time. And, and so once the COC thing, I, I knew it when I came home, I was like, I'm, I'm not getting this job. I just knew it. So yeah, yeah, my yeah. brother picked me up from the airport and I said, and he was living that with my parents too. He had just moved back from Austin, Texas. And I was 23. He was uh, about 25. And I said, you know, he, my brother's a really, really good bass player. And mm -hmm. he also plays guitar very well. And I, I'm a bass player originally as well. And I play guitar. So I looked at him and said, why don't we just start working on music? <laughs> and I've always wanted to work with you in a band. Let's do it. And so uh, we, we started immediately and we would just sit up after the work day because we worked for our family business. Mm -hmm. We would sit in our, either his bedroom or my bedroom at my parents' house with drinks uh, smoke and and guitars and we would play guitar and bass here you take the guitar I take the bass let's work this part out okay yeah, here. Yeah. and literally wrote what ended up becoming uh, the very first penalty demo mm -hmm. which is about six songs I think mm -hmm. uh, most of which ended up on the floodgate penalty album so yeah that's how that started but that was immediate that was literally like no downtime between leaving Exhorter, auditioning for COC, and starting up Penalty. And mm -hmm. uh, so 94 was when we released our first demo. So we, we worked, this was the tail end of 93. We got a band together, yeah. wrote the songs. Jimmy Bauer went into the studio with us and did the, the, the Penalty demo. Jimmy oh, and I were in our first two bands together. I played bass in one and then sang in the next and he played drums. So I've been friends with Jimmy since I was 15 and he was 16. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that was an easy call. And he was like, yeah, it's perfect. He said, cause we're about to record the, the down album and I need to get my chops back up. So let's, let's work. <laughs> and uh, so we recorded the six song demo and, uh, and I started shopping it around and, and, uh, and I had been talking with, uh, uh, the first label that came into the picture was, uh, might've been, might've been pavement right. who had crowbar yep. at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then like overnight, uh, Dominic DeLuca that used to be on the headbangers ball, mm -hmm. um, as the man on the street, he would go out and interview people on the street. He got in touch with me and he's like, man, I heard the demo. And my buddy Mike Schnapp does A and R over at EMI Records, right? And, okay. Uh, and I was like, EMI, all the thing is major label. What you know? I was like, all right. I'm. He's like, he really likes this demo. He wants to start talking with you. So, mm. so we were talking with EMI about doing a deal with them. Well, the next thing you know, somewhere along the line, Monty Connor comes in the picture and and says, "Man, I heard the demo from." And actually, Borovoy was the one who was passing this demo around to people. Uh, okay. So I, I, at the time he was, I think he was, he had just finished doing 
uh, A&R with Century Media. Right, okay. And, and, and I think this was right around the time he was starting to develop uh, Blabbermouth.net because he's, he's, that's his right. thing. Bla- Blabbermouth yeah, is his. That's a and, different uh, thing altogether. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But, uh, but Borovoy really, really loved the penalty demo and believes in me. And uh, he just swore up and down. He's like, dude, Roadrunner is your best bet. And I said, hell no. Oh, I had God. terrible experience with Roadrunner because of Exhorter. Mm-hmm. You know, because they, they – uh, I can't remember if they dropped us before we broke up and we were shopping around or just they we just felt like they never really they 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 never really wanted to give us the tour support we felt we needed mm-hmm. they didn't really put us on the right tours you know we just we felt like we weren't handled properly by roadrunner with exor mm-hmm. so it's a common theme with that roadrunner is- Bad experience, no. And and why do I want to side with Roadrunner? I've got EMI in my back pocket right now, you know. Yeah. And uh, and he's like, dude, he's like, look at EMI. He said, what what rock and metal bands do you see on their roster? He's like, uh, none really. He goes, exactly. He said, EMI's never been known for that. It's a bad decision. I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, maybe we'll be the first one. Who knows? You know that yeah, sure. that, <laughs> that <laughs> I just. I didn't want to hear anything about Roadrunner. I just didn't. Mm. And then I started talking with Monty and Monty told me, he said, I am not going to rest until you sign this contract and are convinced that Roadrunner is the right label for you. And I said, got a lot of work to do, Monty. <laughs> you know, cause Monty, Monty actually, uh, case wanted to drop exhorter after slaughter in the Vatican. Oh really? And Monty, Monty it's, it, it's my understanding that okay. Monty told him, if they go, I go. And so Monty put his neck on the chopping block for us. Wow. And Case said, all right. Now, granted, I wasn't there for any of this. This is my understanding of the story. Mm-hmm. But Case said, all right, you got a second chance with this band. Mm-hmm. And after things didn't go the way that the label had hoped for the law, he, uh, that's what it was. They did drop us. That's right. Because he said, uh, he called us up and he said, um, I put my neck on the block for y'all once before, but if I put my neck down one more time, I'm losing my head and I hate to do this, <laughs> but you know, and I, I don't fault Monty for that one bit. You know, he, sure. he stood up for us already once, but you know, a lot of our failures, most of our failures were our own fault. We didn't work hard enough. We turned down tours that were offered to us for, you know, this reason or that, uh, we were problematic. We got kicked off of a tour uh, with Entombed and how do you manage that? Just, uh, we, we, is, is this, it a, was is this still, a story that's been told before? If it is, I'll, I'll happily just skip over it, but I'll, I'll give you the short version of cool. it. Uh, basically it was billed as a co-headliner, oh, right. which means that we pay for half the tour, but right. we're opening every night and, and tunes crew didn't want to work for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they felt like they didn't work for us. And we, so we were, we ended up having to be our road crew and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Their management hated us. And we really, we got along fine with the guys in the tomb. I, you know, we, I really haven't stayed in touch with any of them, but I loved them. I, I, mm-hmm. I got along fine with all of them. And, and most of them were pretty young. Some of them were like only, you know, 18 years old, 19 years old. Sure. So they were a little bit 
most of them were a little bit younger than us or our age. Um, but the conflict between us and their management complicated things. So we started on the East Coast, came down across the bottom of the states, went over to the east to the west coast and we were supposed to double back around and end up again in uh like new york or pennsylvania mm -hmm. or something by the time we got to la and this is our fault i always blame it on dead horse because <laughs> they're they're my friends and they were sure. they were complicit in this also but it's a joke it was it was us just as much as anybody we basically destroyed a backstage room okay. and <laughs> I'm not sure who did it, but somebody in our band uh, defecated on a plate. <laughs> somebody stuck a fork in it, and they dumped out a silver salad bowl and covered the plate. And as people would enter the room, they would lift and go, pate, pate, pate. <laughs> and so uh, between, I mean, just there was like popcorn ground under the carpet. There was oranges splattered on the wall. It was like a. It, we just destroyed everything in this dressing room, <laughs> and uh, and so we got kicked off the tour the next day. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I can't Happens. remember. I, I can't remember what we were talking about before that. <laughs> I think we were been um, sidetracked. I, I think. I think we were just. I, I, I was getting around to when we got dropped oh, by dropped. Roadrunner. Right. So yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah we. Um, out, yeah. I, I think we were starting to segue into floodgate, and I. I, I I kind of uh, went to the back burner onto the uh, exhorter yeah, stuff. No, right. I think you were summarizing the um, the bad so, experience with with Roadrunner previously. Yes, so yes. The next question would be: So, what was the carrot they dangled in front of you for Floodgate? Um, they they uh, they gave us a really good offer, and mm -hmm. uh, I got a, a phone call from Dominic DeLuca as we were getting our offer, and he said, "Guess what." He said, do you remember Fred, uh, Fred Davis, who was uh, the vice president of EMI when, when you were talking with, with Mike Schnapp over there? I said, yes. He, I said, he, if I remember correctly, he, uh, they did a, a change of office. They kind of flushed out their administration, and, and, and Fred was removed from the vice president position, which had a lot to do with why EMI was no longer interested in us because Fred was interested in us as vice president. And therefore Mike Schnapp in A&R was talking with us when Fred was uh, pushed out the door, then EMI was no longer interested in us. So uh, that's when we ended up signing with, uh, starting to talk, getting a serious talks with, with Roadrunner. Mm -hmm. And so they gave us an offer and I, uh, I was talking with, with uh, Dominic about Fred Davis. Fred Davis went back to his law firm because right. that's what, he was an entertainment lawyer before he was in A&R and vice president of the label, this and that. Mm -hmm. So uh, Fred Davis is Clive Davis's son. So <laughs> for those that don't know who Clive Davis is, yeah. he's pretty much like the biggest music mogul maybe ever, you know, mm -hmm. You got your Phil Spectors, you got your Clive Davises. You Don, Don and, uh, Adams is up there. Right, right. So um, so I hired Fred. Fred, I talked to him on the phone, and I hired Fred to negotiate our contract. And I, I got a phone call from Monty the next day going, what is this? Mm. I said, what is what? And he goes, 
this hotshot lawyer. I said, well, he's going to negotiate our contract. <laughs> and he said, I'm worried that he might screw things up. I said, I'm not worried he's going to screw anything <laughs> up. So, uh, it ended up working out really, really great. Uh, he, he took a, a really good offer from Roadrunner and made it an amazing offer for us. He He got our budget for the first album up to like $45,000. And we had like a $27,000 signing bonus, which was almost unheard of for uh, a brand new band on an independent label. So uh, it, it, it allowed for penalty at the time because we were still penalty. Mm -hmm. It allowed for us to launch our business. Yeah. yeah. You know, put a little money in our pockets and, you know, buy real equipment for ourselves. And, and man, we, we just came out the gates as professional. It was, it was the first band that I ran. I, I took a small business management course mm-hmm. at the local community college just to learn how to run a business. And, and uh, the guys in the band were all sensible, responsible. Uh, we just, we, we meant business and we presented ourselves that way. And, and it, that band grew fairly quickly uh, and, and the, the, the biggest drawback that we had, um, was but not long before we were going to release the album. Um, Monty called me and said, we got problems with the trademark for, uh, for penalty. I was like, right. Okay. What's the problem? He goes, well, the biggest problem is, is y'all don't own it. Uh, <laughs> second problem is that the company that does own it is out of South America. They make, uh, clothing for football, uh, and right. uh, and they are not interested in licensing out the name for you guys to sell penalty T-shirts on tour. Yeah, the music industry like, can't okay. compete with the soccer industry in any. No, no, no. And I was like, well, how much did you offer them? It's like, well, we offered them five thousand dollars. I said, offer them ten. And he's like, that ain't happening. He's like, you got you got an extra five grand in your pocket? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, not happening. The label's not going to do it. I said, well, we're, we're, we're not changing our name. He goes, well, if you don't change your name, then the deal's dead, regrettably. So, mm. okay, all right. So when then we started entertaining that. We, we agonized over that for probably a couple of months. And yeah. we finally – and I, really it was Monty that suggested Floodgate because uh, we had all voted on a name. I think it was Ashes to Power. And, uh, and I really liked it. Everybody else really liked it. We, we in- included a, a core of our closest friends to help us vote for a name. And, and that was the name that everybody came up with. And, uh, Monty just didn't care for the name. So, so then he came back with floodgate and that ties in really well with the band for starters in the song imitation salvation i talk about floodgates i it's it's a word it's a lyric in one of the songs and floodgate floodgates are a big thing here in greater new orleans because we're a city that floods so we have a lot of floodgates so thematically it worked Mm -hmm. the drawback is and and we had been working for at this point for over two years under the name penalty so Mm -hmm. the buzz on this band was penalty it was all penalty everybody in the press was looking forward to this penalty record (laughs) so i said the only way to do damage control on that i said we're naming the album penalty sure and and he was happily you know in agreement with that but 
it confused everybody. So nobody had heard of penalty floodgate. Nobody knew what was coming. Yeah. Um, I had talked with, uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Catherine Terman or Catherine Ludwig. I used to do uh, interviews with both of them. And one of them told me that they went to uh, a listening party for the floodgate album and they were like well who is this band and yeah and they were like uh well and then they, they had it explained to them like penalty wait that's the band with kyle thomas from exhorter mm. hold on like now it's called floodgate mm. and they're like yeah so i i think a lot of the people that were expecting and anticipating the penalty album just kind of drifted away right okay and uh and so a very anticipated album now became a confusing uh problem and mm. uh the album just did not do well in the states uh roadrunner did not do they didn't pay for one ad in the united states i was told and uh Shit. that's 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 a kiss of death for an album mm. by a brand new band so yeah uh basically we never did a proper u.s tour other than a, a diy tour that i booked myself mm -hmm. uh the best that i could and um we were uh contacted at the time chris nail from exhorter our drummer uh back then was managing floodgate mm -hmm. and he he called me one night and said dude i got great news he said uh I just heard from Gloria Cavalera that uh, Sepultura wants you guys uh, to uh, replace the Deftones because the Deftones dropped off of the the Roots tour in the United in in Europe, and uh, it's like it's like they want you guys. I was like, get out of here. That's mm. that's an arena tour. Yeah, yeah. He's like, exactly. He's like, dude, this is it. This is it. Well. Uh, I said, I said, call Monty in the morning and, and get this taken care of. So he got on the phone and then later on in the day, he got a phone call from Gloria saying, uh, what's going on? I just talked to your guy at the label and I, I, I don't, it wasn't Monty because Monty doesn't handle that. He just, whoever was in mm. charge of the touring at the time, yeah. uh, he said, they just called me. And, and are trying to get me to take one of their other bands out. So I'm like, are you kidding okay. me? You know, Sepultura contacts us mm. on, on an album that just came out that we need to support that you, you would think the label would be excited about this. Yeah, no, yeah. no. It, they were trying to get another one of their bands on that tour. So I'm living. I called Monty. I said, dude, we're, you know, I'm done with this label forever if this happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Gloria, Gloria, Gloria clamped down and said, it's this band or none of your bands. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they gave us the tour support to do the tour. Um, most, I, I think that was another confusion thing because we were still relatively unknown and Deftones were very well known at the time. Yeah, yeah. So for us to replace a well-known band as an unknown, yeah. And, you know, we, we're drastically different from Sepultura musically. Mm. So uh, some countries really embraced it and some did not. We had some tough shows. We got spit on, got stuff thrown at us. Uh, 
And uh, like, inter- what, like, sorry, go. Like, for instance, when we played the UK, we were actually charting in the UK at the time. Oh, so it was incredible. Every night, every show was just incredible. Yeah. We're selling a lot of merch. Uh, we step off the bus and there's a line of kids waiting there to you know meet us and sign stuff. Yeah, and but we get to you know france or italy and and the fans were very confrontational Mm. and uh and we're just doing our best you know uh to make the best of it but it it was it was tough and i I think one of the things that was the death knell for penalty with well for floodgate with with roadrunner was uh my second meeting with case he came to the rotterdam show and the rotterdam show was one of the biggest ones there was about nine thousand people there right okay and uh and we're playing the show, playing, 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 playing hard. And the floor just didn't give a damn about us. They're flipping us off. You know, you know, you, we're in the way of them and Sepultura. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but the upper, the upper deck was enjoying the show. Mm. So, so we just started focusing on them, you know, and playing the show. Well, <laughs> I've never, I've, this is the first time I've done it. I've never done it since. I said to the crowd that we got one more song and then the whole place just went. (laughs) (laughs) The most applause we got was when we we were announcing that we were just about finished. And, um, and I think in Case's eyes that night we were finished uh, because he saw it in person and uh, it didn't matter that the UK shows came after and that things were great. The, the the booking agent that we were using also booked for corn and tool and he told me after the, the uk leg he's like he's like i love you guys he's like this is something big i want you guys to come back and do uh, a two-week run with corn and then a two-week run with tool and then i want you to do a headlining residential tour of the uk mm-hmm. so we're like this is it we made it we made yeah, it we so I, I got home and i called monty great news and he was kind of like, okay. And I could tell oh, no. he wasn't excited. I'm like, what? He goes, Case isn't going to give you the tour support. He said he's done putting any more money into this band and anything that y'all do from here, you're going to have to do on your own dime. Shit. Like, um, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we can make this. But finally, we're charting in the UK and all these great things are happening. He's like, unless y'all can pay for it, it's not happening. And we couldn't afford it. So they didn't drop it, so they just they just took all the money away. They did, and then um they were about to drop us, uh, but in Cleveland, Ohio, here in the States, our single Through My Days Into My Nights all of a sudden just became uh became a a, a hit. Mm. It is uh on this FM radio station every uh Every night or once a week, I forget what it was. They had a a, a show where this this radio station would play, you know, requests and and we were like in the top ten every night. And we were up there with Metallica, Danzig, all the you know, Marilyn Manson, all the stuff that was big at the time. Yeah, and our song was competing in the top ten every night with them. Mm-hmm. And Monty called me, but he said, "Dude, I got to tell you," he said. Case is ready to drop y'all now, but because of this, he wants to see if it's going to catch fire. Yeah, and yeah. if it spreads, you know, because that sometimes it happens that way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, and uh, <laughs> as fate would have it, within like the next week, that radio station went out of business. 
<laughs> so guess who got dropped the second time from road oh, man man that shit especially because like win. yeah yeah because you kind of like you shot lightning twice with roadrunner as well because you you were there for the thrash thing when monta was on the thrash thing and then yep. there's this weird phase with roadrunner in the early 90s where they expand quite exponentially in terms of style they start getting electronica and industrial imprints and things like that and yes. try to respond to grunge Obviously, Floodgate had a, it shred the line really nicely, nicely between that Nola sound at the time. But I, I hear a bit like Alice in Chains in there, so it was super accessible. Um, and this is a big thing that I heard from Mike from uh, Defiance. You were only 25 at the time, right? 95, I was 25. Yeah, yeah. So you were still in the core demographic of artists that uh, Monty and Case would have been. Yeah. Yes. If you'd been five years older, it would have been an absolute fucking no, no-go apparently yeah it's the difference between finding new species of dinosaurs and digging up fossils yeah (laughs) (laughs) so you know uh, it it was it it is it is what it is i i I, you know i can't say i haven't had my chances in life that's for sure i've I've had a lot of bad breaks you know we, we once we got dropped we just kept going and we started demoing songs to we were just going to do our second album you know just record it on our own and maybe uh you know lease it out to a label uh mm-hmm. for distribution and uh i don't know within within a, a a year or two after that we we never floodgate never even really broke up it just kind of stopped just yeah, kind it's, of fizzled it's it's Dude, really really sad there, was, there were great expectations for that there's there's an old uh, uh, saying that was going around the industry that a friend of mine that still worked at Roadrunner told me that after they signed Nickelback, uh, he said that there was a buzz within the industry that Roadrunner finally figured out what to do with Floodgate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's gutting. So, you know, it is. Yeah. Again, it is what it is. It, it, it wasn't long after that that I uh, I got married and started a family. So sure. I I just said, you know, this part of my life has created a lot of heartache for me. Let me go ahead and do the 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 first dream of my life, which was to be a father and, and mm-hmm. have a family. So um, I did go back to touring here and there a little bit throughout my children's early life, but for the most part. I got nine, I got a nine to five and I was dad. That was it. That was my life. Yeah, man. Yeah. But my children are grown now. My youngest will be 18 in January. That's crazy. Hey man, you got space to do the uh, 25th anniversary floodgate tour. That's good news. <laughs> That's going to take some work. I'm sure. But, uh, <laughs> It'd be nice. I mean, I'll be honest with you. That's, there's another album that's hailed as a classic and yep. a pioneering type album. I've been I've been involved with a lot of bands that are pioneers of this and that. Trouble, Alabama Thunderpussy. I mean, basically, a lot of a lot of my contemporaries tell me, and fans too, they tell me the Floodgate Penalty album was one of the early stoner type albums you know groove mm-hmm. albums like yeah. like you, you know I, I don't know that it was pure stoner but there really was stoner wasn't a f- thing yet really you had bands like Fu Manchu and Caius yeah in the beginning uh and we were kind of in that vein it mm-hmm. wasn't really called stoner yet I don't think but no uh, but here we are like I've gotten offers from festivals in Europe 
you know, offering really nice guarantees for me to get floodgate over there. And it's just not feasible right now. So, yeah, yeah. you know, that that's mm-hmm. happened over the years. Not, not as, not as frequently now that I've got exhorter and trouble going. So I guess people mm-hmm. just figure I'm, I'm too busy, but, uh, the, the, the demand is there for it. You know, I'm not going to say that if we got back together that we'd be huge or anything, but mm. there's an audience out there for floodgates, you know, right now in retrospect, it's just feels like a dream. It just, yeah. it happened in a very short number of years. And mm. the promise of it was so big. And, and I got everything, but a, a guarantee on paper that we would be, prioritized by mm. roadrunner and and f- at first we kind of were like until the album came out it's like they treated us like we had great press yeah they they they, they hooked me up with all the right press avenues we were you know sometimes on the cover of a magazine or or just a full spread yeah uh the reviews were excellent um the critics loved the album and it just everything was just lined up and then you know for whatever reason it's kind of like exhorter exhorter was there in the beginning but by the time it happened for us it was a little too late Mm. well same thing happened for floodgate except i think we were a little too early because at that time new metal was happening Mm. so you had your corns your uh you know rage against the machine these bands were all big and exploding and uh and so I, I don't know this for sure, but I was told again by another little bluebird within the Roadrunner office mm-hmm. that Case told them to discontinue all of our tour support, any kind of money that was going into Floodgate yep. and direct it into Cold Chamber because right, they okay. were a new metal band and that was hitting. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it, it worked out for them, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? but, uh, I don't know. It just, it just didn't, it just didn't line up right for us. And I, I was, uh, I was not taking, uh, I had no interest in taking bad deals for us to get to the next level. Cause I did it, you know, I, I, I saw that it was, it was tough for exhorter. So I, I, I had high expectations for the band. So like bad tours with, with bad, um, bad slots and bad bad guarantees where we were going to lose money. I just, I couldn't commit to doing it. We were all in our mid late twenties and living on our own. We we weren't kids at home anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess as a result, we, uh, the hungrier bands got, got bigger, you know? Yeah. Any hard feelings towards Roadrunner? For a long time. Yes. Mm. yes um not so much anymore because it's so far back into my past and uh and definitely not with the majority of the people that i dealt with there sure uh you know i know monty did everything he could for us and like i said he's he's a truer friend even than he is um an honest businessman and i I love him i have nothing but respect for him as a businessman as well and i'm still personal friends with uh, a handful of the people that were on staff back then. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I, I just don't think they handled. 
I know we made mistakes along the way, especially in Exhorter. I don't think we really made mistakes with Floodgate, mm-hmm. but I think they dropped the ball on us quite a bit. And, uh, and missed opportunities. It, it, you know, I mean, look at Grunt Truck. Grunt Truck was on that label at the heart of the Seattle thing. Yeah. And Grunt Truck was as good as any of those other bands from the Seattle scene. In fact, pioneered a lot of the music that came big out of Seattle. Mm. And, uh, and I talked with those guys, uh, more than once. And they were just like, this, this label doesn't know what to do with us, mm. you know? So for, for all of the, <clears throat> all the knowledge and experience and know-how that they had with breaking thrash and death metal, it was really, uh, it was, uh, the, the the other genres that were that they were starting to reach out into that yeah. kind of I think they just kind of threw things to the wall and see if it stuck you know they yeah, yeah. they had typo negative under contract and I, I it was <laughs> it was told to me that uh, typo felt like they would have been a lot bigger if they had been on a on another label you know so you know Roadrunner was very proud of typo negative because first goal record and they did really well mm. but uh you know typo probably could have been a lot bigger on a on a major label they just they stuck with a an independent contract you know yeah i don't know i mean i'm i'm speaking for them and i probably shouldn't because it's not my place it, it's just what i heard that's all hearsay sure so, but it is it is interesting because you've kind of like mirrored the narrative that i'm seeing which is because you want to kind of answer the question of was this accidental or was it a really, really clever play by the label throughout all these years to create the, the absolute monster that it was? And it's so far, it's like such a, an eclectic mix of both. There are some very well calculated decisions. and There's a lot of just like throw shit at the wall, see what sticks. At, at, at the end of the day, where I am right now, I've got a great relationship with nuclear blast. Uh, Monty's Monty? art. Who brought yeah, you Yeah, Monty's our, Monty's our guy. Oof. Yeah. That's cool, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so Monty still lost the faith. in Exhorter. So yeah. um, that was easy. That was literally like just a handshake, you know, <laughs> minus the contract negotiation. It was just, yep. yeah, when we, did, when we did our first uh, demo of a new Exhorter song, he heard it and said, I want it. I yep. want it now. So uh, so that's where we're at with, with that. But, it, it, you know, Am I still a little bit bitter about the way things ended up with Roadrunner? You betcha. Mm. But do I understand and appreciate all of the hard work that the people that were there that believed in my bands and all the sacrifices they made? I couldn't be more grateful to them. Yeah, man. Without a doubt. Yeah. I do love how uh, Monty still kept the faith and brought you over to Nuclear Blast. And it paid off because the new album is shit up. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's another one. We worked really hard on it. And finally, we got an album that represents our live sound and the album that we always dreamed of. So we we knew going into making that album what we did not want to do. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, this is the thing about Floodgate, though, isn't it? Because you, like I said earlier, you're only 25 and you fucking cut your teeth on X order. So you knew exactly what the pitfalls were. You knew how to negotiate. Coming out of that was 
and they should have really seen you as, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to go back onto like how they dropped the ball, but you were a much more viable asset to the label back then for Floodgate than probably most of the new artists at the time because you knew how to negotiate, well, you knew how to navigate those waters. And you knew, and you obviously had a product that they appreciated. So those, those two we, things. We, we had a product. We had a great band with everybody in the band having vocal capability. Yep. And we were all young and good looking. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But you did come uh, back for whatever from, reason. You came back for Constitution Down, though, on Roadrunner United, which is an album I love. Yes. That was uh, Joey Jordison specifically asked Monty to invite me to do that. So, Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 So that, that really kind of put me back on the map after. Uh, I mean, I did a couple of albums before that happened uh, just locally. Uh, yeah. One called Jones's Lounge, and another one uh, with a band called Pitts versus Preps. And mm -hmm. Jones's Lounge is a little more along the lines of what Floodgate was, right. and uh, Pitts versus Preps was a lot more like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. Cool. Uh, but I was a dad at the time. I played a few local shows. We didn't do any touring or anything. Saturday I couldn't do it. Things. Yeah. It wasn't until it wasn't until after Hurricane Katrina when life presented me with uh, a whole new slate that I ended up joining Alabama Thunder Pussy and, and, you know, toured with them hard for about 18 months. And we did the open fire record, which was highly uh, acclaimed. 2007. Yeah. Finally got my stuff on MTV and, you know, the, and then that stopped happening and uh, trouble invited me back in the band as a permanent member in 2012. So, we're working on new music as well. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man. I just, Alabama Thunder Pussy, though, just has such a special place in my heart. I think it's just like maybe the time I was born into and what I was into at the time, but it's a fucking solid album. That is absolutely solid. I'd recommend it. To Hardest everyone. working band I was ever in. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that for a million years, but this is a Roadrunner show so let's not of course uh, maybe maybe another time so i've got two more questions in fact is there anything i've missed anything noteworthy about your experience with roadrunner that i might have, might be interested in i've got, I've got a lot no of no no we've we've, we've gone over the highs and lows with both of those bands so whatever other questions you got fire away two silly ones um have you ever seen a ghost yes you're the first person to have seen a ghost that I've asked. Everyone else usually has like a ghost cat or a ghost dog or some strange experiences, but I, I'm going to say Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've always had kind of a sixth sense um, where I, you know, I, I feel things and uh, I'm not like a medium or anything, but I, sure. I think, I just think I'm tuned into that aspect of, uh, of that dimension. Um, but yes, I actually did. I was visiting my brother and my cousin. They were rooming together one day, and I was checking the oil in my car. It was a beautiful day, sunny, blue what skies. Oh, uh, probably about ninety four, ninety five. Cool. And uh, and so I'm looking under my hood at the engine, and in my peripheral vision, I can see the the facade of their house and the steps. And as, as I'm doing what I'm doing, I see, um. Uh, like a, a lady in a white dress with like red hair, fair skin, red hair, like strawberry blonde, mm -hmm. start coming down the steps, walking down the walkway towards the car. And as I'm looking, I'm like, I don't remember a Weird. girl being here. And 
I turn to look, and as I'm looking, it's vanishing. Right. And I'm right. like, whoa, whoa. This and is down the middle ghost experience, like in white. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't, I think I saw something. This is, I saw something. And <laughs> so immediately I just stopped and I walked into the house to go be with my brother and my cousin because I was like, <laughs> God, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't a fearful thing. It wasn't yeah. frightening. But I realized, I That's pretty much think I just saw a ghost. Yeah, yeah. So I went, I went inside, and I walked in, and my brother and my cousin are sitting on the couch. And as soon as they look at me, I look at them, and they went, "Look how white he is. He's pale. Yeah. What?" <laughs> and I just went, "I think I just saw a ghost in the front yard." <laughs> and my cousin and brother look at each other, and one of them just goes. I told you, man, something's up in this house. <laughs> so they had been experiencing stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never knew that. I didn't know that that they had experienced things. But they they said, yeah, yeah, that that particular house, they've definitely had more than one experience. And that, that's not the only experience I've ever had. But that's the only time I I can say that I've ever seen a ghost. Yes. Sure, sure, sure. Awesome. You've over delivered for me there, Kyle. Thank you very much. <laughs> Last but not least, um, I want to do. I want to bring back tape trading because it's so hard to find good music in the oversaturated market today. You can go on Spotify. You have to go through all kinds of shite before you get to the good shit. So, is there a sort of small band, a local band that you think deserves more attention? There's a lot of them. Uh, New Orleans is definitely always a hotbed for great talent. So, uh, I've got my keyboard ready. Oh, Green Gasoline. Okay, this sounds good. Definitely, they're they're more, um, they're not like thrash or anything. They're they're just heavy, good heavy rock. Uh, mm-hmm. Great vocals, great musicianship, really good yeah. band. Um, for for extreme music, um, you've got a hanging, a hanging, yeah. And Bobby Bergeron from a hanging was. Uh, one of the key tape traders here in uh, in the history of this area. So mm-hmm. that's actually cool. If you're <laughs> talking about legitimate tape trading, yeah. <laughs> um, raise the death toll. That's another band. Um, there's also, uh, I just had them on the tip of my, Oh, um, six pack. Okay. Uh, wait, wait, I take it back. That's their old name. Uh, okay. They are now called uh, Morbid Torment. Morbid and they're thrashy, sorry. thrashy kind of band. And I'll spit out a couple more for you also. Um, Adam Pierce, it's P E A R C E. Yep. And the Warbirds. Awesome. Oh, Adam nice. Pierce and the Warbirds. And that's, that's more like bluesy, heavy rock along the Floodgate Avenue. Uh, and um the unnaturals they're cool they're kind of like surf punk okay um capra c-a-p-r-a c-a-p-r-a i think they just got signed to metal blade and they're they're not from new orleans but they're from uh like the lafayette area which isn't far from here they're from louisiana yeah yeah so that's that's quite a bit of uh new music for you to check out that's some, some homework for me mate thank you yeah yeah so uh, to Tell you, them I'm, gonna, I sent you. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so for you, I've got three. Um, in fact, no, let's make it four. Let's make it fun. So um, one, um, a band called Forlorn Hope. Forlorn Hope? No, Forlorn. F-O-R-L-O-R-N. So Forlorn as if... Forlorn. Yeah, like in despair. Forlorn Hope? Yes. So they're a Liverpoolian power metal band who sing about okay. the Napoleonic Wars. So if that's the kind of thing, then... Great. Uh, there's one from around me in Leeds called Dream Troll. They're pretty cool. They 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 call themselves keeping the spirit of uh, new wave of British heavy metal alive. I don't. Oh, think cool. Dream. Think, what is it? Dream what? Troll. Troll. Yeah. T R O. Dream Troll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't think that's. It, I don't think it's true though that they're keeping that spirit alive. They have, they're too new school for that. They do sound good. And they sound like a bit like new wave of British heavy metal, but they're too innovative to like be burdened with that as a as a label. Um, then there's Death Ripper, which is like black metal but rock and roll. Death Ripper, sorry, no, I'm full of shit. Hell Ripper, Hell Ripper, sorry, one word. Hell Ripper, correct. All one word. And then last but not least, you may have already heard of these guys, Honor Core. Honor Core. Arno Core, A R N O C O R P. Yeah, yeah. So they're just like a hardcore ish band that, like a punk ish band that just use Arnold Schwarzenegger lyric, uh, words for lyrics. Gotcha, gotcha. There's one more to add to your list. I'm, I'm just remembering. Uh, Death Ed. Uh, Death Ed. E D. Yeah, Death Ed. Um, they're like a, 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 a rock band with a punk kind of edge really good stuff cool cool awesome there's loads for us to get through now (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and that's it from me man well thank you very much for joining me and telling me about your your roadrunner stories i I very much appreciate it thank you jim thank you Um, temple of Blair. really grateful to you i'll anoint you with the waters of the temple of (laughs) Blair. um i'll let you know when it's all going up I don't even think we need to edit this one because everything seems to flow really well, so that'll uh, good, good. 